Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Jeremy Cliff in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C. It's Friday, the 17th of July. Welcome to World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. Emily, how are things in Washington? Well, we're starting to see a, a slight increase in the number of coronavirus cases, which is obviously less than ideal. But otherwise, things are are fine here in D.C. How is Berlin? Berlin is fine. The big focus here as we record this is on Brussels, where Angela Merkel has just arrived for the EU summit to discuss the proposed recovery fund, which is going to be potentially a really taboo-breaking moment in the European project. But there's a lot of question about whether or not it's too ambitious or whether it exposes northern countries to too much liability. So we're all watching that. Before we get on to introduce our guest, what do you think has been the historically significant moment of the past week? At the risk of being too US centric yet again, you know, protesters are reportedly being picked up by authorities in unmarked vans in Portland, Oregon. You know, we talk so much about free speech and freedom of expression, and this, at least to me, seems like a pretty clear violation of First Amendment rights. I talk a little bit about, or a lot about, about the, the tension of the discussion on cancel culture versus what freedom of speech actually is in a piece that's up on the New Statesman this week. And I think this is a really clear example of that. What is your moment of the week? I mean, I just firstly endorse what you say and encourage listeners to take a look at our coverage of the whole cancel culture debate. You know, it's really, it's really been defined by these very oversimplified takes, I think, on on both sides in many ways. And we have two really, really nuanced and smart takes by you and by Sarah Manavis, our digital culture editor. So I would encourage listeners to take a look at those. For me, I think, if only to complete our long saga of following the Polish presidential election with, it turns out, ill-placed optimism, (laughs) um, I will have to point out that, unfortunately, for I suspect most of those listening to this, Andrzej Duda, who was Poland's president until the election and will now remain its president, won by about 51% to 49% against Rafał Trzaskowski after a really ugly campaign. You know, his mandate is built on hatred of LGBTQ people and a lot of really dodgy reporting in Poland's state media. It's a sad piece of news, but... 
you know, life goes on. And we have Annabelle Chapman in Warsaw, a great Polish correspondent, writing about the lessons that the Polish opposition can take from this narrow defeat. I mean, there are positive sides to it, namely the fact that a opposition candidate who was seen to have little or few chances at the start of this year managed to run the incumbent president pretty close. But she also has kind of eight pieces of advice for the opposition as to how they should proceed from here. So that's quite an interesting take. So I think that is significant. And it is disappointing for those of us who were dismayed by the way that Duda ran his campaign. But the next challenge in Poland is the parliamentary election in three years time. And we're starting to look ahead to that already. So onwards and upwards. With that, so good, Emily... news to, good news to Polish election fans. We will continue to talk about it on this podcast. <laughs> exactly. Emily, why don't we move on from that and uh, introduce our guest? Yes, absolutely. We are delighted that our guest this week is Nina Jankowicz. She is a New Statesman contributor, but she is also the author of a recently released book, How to Lose the Information War. Nina, thank you so much for, for being with us today. It's great to be with you both. Thanks for having me. So, you know, before we really get into the substance of your book, I know that you had been working on it for a few years and was wondering if you could tell our listeners a bit about how you decided to write the book and how you decided where in the world you were going to to focus. Sure. So the book was kind of born out of exasperation. <laughs> I uh, I was living in Ukraine in 2016 and 2017 on a Fulbright grant where I was advising the Ukrainian Foreign Ministry on strategic communications during those halcyon days when Russian interference was kind of a new thing on the American political scene. Uh, all the revelations were just coming out about Russian election interference and I was growing increasingly frustrated with the conversation even before the election results came in because there was just so little depth to what we were talking about. There was so little recognition of what had been going on in Central and Eastern Europe in the post-Soviet, post-communist space over the past 10 years. And that became especially clear after the election results came out. So that the idea for the book, looking at the responses of five Central and Eastern European governments to Russian disinformation, grew out of that experience in Ukraine and the research I was doing there. And although I did not expect while we were releasing the book that, you know, it would be amid a pandemic that was causing a lot of disinformation or, you know, amplifying it, there would be these these protests in the United States, which also have generated their fair share of quote unquote fake news. I think there really couldn't be a better time for the book, because although it's about Russian disinformation, one of the main things that I try to drive home is that, you know, we can't fight foreign interference when we are using the very same tactics on our own people. You're just talking about Poland. Poland is one of the case studies in the book that, you know, really exemplifies that. And how I decided where to report from, it was not a very scientific process, I'm going to admit. You know, I have certain language skills and certain connections in, in um, the countries that I chose. So Estonia, Georgia, Poland, Czech Republic, and Ukraine. But they also all represent different types of Russian interference, different sort of influence tactics and campaigns, some that deal with money laundering, some that deal with, you know, the purely online influence tactics and things like that. And I wanted to kind of paint a picture of the full range of influence, because often we think about this as just an online thing. And that is definitely not true. Before we get into the details, and this is such a fascinating discussion, how would you, would you define the difference between merely bad journalism or partisan journalism or client journalism, which exists in a lot of countries and has existed for a long time, 
and what you call sort of disinformation? And also, how would you relate it to the term fake news? Because I think we need to start off with a sense of what we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So starting with the fake news question, I actually had a little bit of a a fight with my publisher about the subtitle of the book. They really wanted the words fake news in there as a signpost for curious readers, which I understand because that's unfortunately the shorthand with how we refer to all of this stuff. Unfortunately, it's it's all but lost meaning though, because of the way politicians bandy it about labeling anything that's, you know, inconvenient reporting for them fake news. So I think that's not a helpful term. It doesn't mean much anymore. Mm. The difference between disinformation and kind of client journalism is the malign intent behind it. So disinformation is false or misleading information spread with malign intent. That's different than misinformation. That's when crazy Uncle Joe or Aunt Sally is, you know, sending chain mail on their email and and it's full of conspiracy theories, but, you know, they think they're doing a public service. There's no real malign intent behind that. And I would say in terms of client journalism and some of the PR tactics that mirror disinformation, there is usually not that malign intent. Now, that being said, we have seen increasing use of PR firms by malign actors, including Russia, which recently hired PR firms in in Africa to do their dirty work. We're seeing this happening increasingly, but we can, you know, put the disinformation label on that because behind it, A, there is that malign intent and B, usually it is breaking some sort of terms of service of the platforms that they're using. So either through spam or inauthentic activity, that sort of thing. And that's the difference. It's a murky world, but I think you're absolutely right. We do need to be precise about what we're talking about. Mm. So the book is largely focused on on Central and Eastern Europe for reasons that you previously described. How do you see this manifesting differently A in the different between the different countries to which you traveled and and then between that general region and the United States? So I think the similarities are more numerous than the differences at this point. The the one thing that is really stark in my mind as a difference is the the recognition of the problem. Most of these countries even if they have a kind of somewhat you know, impeded response to Russian disinformation for domestic political reasons, they all recognize that it's a problem. And here we are in the United States and to some extent, Great Britain, which still hasn't, you know, released the parliamentary report on Russia. I think it's supposed to come out next week now. We still are are worrying ourselves about whether this this phenomenon in fact exists. And that's something that these countries haven't haven't done. But in terms of how the campaigns manifest themselves differently, I think this is a key difference between Russia disinformation of this internet era and the stuff that we used to see during the Soviet Union, the pro-Soviet propaganda. In that time period, you know, obviously the vectors through which disinformation could travel were much fewer, they were much slower, so we can thank social media for that. But also the aim of that propaganda was different. It was to promote the Soviet worldview. Here, in today's day and age, we have, you know, a different goal, ultimately. It is to denigrate Western democracy and increase Russia's importance on the world stage. And Russia isn't, it really doesn't have any scruples about how it does that. It's not necessarily about supporting one political party or one political ideology. In fact, in Germany, in the UK, in the United States, even in, in places like Poland and Ukraine, we increasingly see Russia operating on, on all sides of the political spectrum, often pitting opposing views against each other because that chaos increased distrust in the democratic system, decreases participation in that system, which democracy needs to run on, and that ultimately aids Russia. You mentioned politicians here and in, in the UK sort of not coming to terms with what's going on. And while it's extremely lame 
to be like, and now a bit about my book. Um, I'm going to do that. <laughs> no, because, do it. <laughs> you know, you know, uh, in my book, The Influence of Soros, now available in the United States, you know, I, I talk about conspiracy theories. And one of the things that struck me in writing it is that it is, it is extremely difficult to combat them when you have world leaders spreading them. Mm -hmm. In the case of Soros, it's, you know, it's Trump and Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban. And, and you had Fitza at, at some point, like you've had, you, you know, you've had leaders across Europe and the United States, in some cases in Asia, spread these conspiracy theories. So how, how do you win the information war if those in the highest seats of power are not interested in combating or don't appear to be particularly interested in combating disinformation? Yeah, not only are they not interested in in combating disinformation, they are happily employing it on their own people. Right, and spreading it. Yeah, there is no incentive for them to do otherwise. In fact, there are disincentives for them to combat it because it benefits them. So I think that points to the need for regulatory structures around this. Some of that has to do with campaign finance and, you know, campaign advertising regulations. The fact that here in the United States, we don't have the same restrictions on online advertising that we do related to you know, print TV and radio election advertising is is still just mind boggling to me that we haven't, you know, even accomplished that in the past four years. But it's also about increasing oversight and transparency over the platforms. I don't want social media firms to be playing whack-a-troll and removing content that, you know, they find distasteful or whatever. I don't think anybody wants that. I also think that most Americans don't want the government to do that. That might be, you know, that might differ in, in other countries. Certainly Germany has taken a more proactive stance in that regard, and the UK is headed in that direction as well. But we still need some oversight. We still need some transparency about how this information is reaching us, why we are being targeted with it, how you know politicians and advertising firms and bad actors all, all over the world are using our personal data and the record of our engagement to target us with the messages that we are most vulnerable to. And I do believe that by you know increasing that awareness among the general population, people are going to start to demand something else because right now they're seeing a very fragmented view of, of really what's going on everywhere in the in the information environment and that's being hastened by these politicians I'm also doing some work in my my day job you know trying to work with politicians to impress upon them that disinformation knows no political party it's a threat to the democratic system and even though it might be helping you today at some point it's going to come back and bite you in the butt and you can put that on yeah. <laughs> on the graphic that you share for this episode but uh, you know some people recognize that um, unfortunately it's become so politicized in, in, in several different countries that there's just very little political will to deal with it. And we need regulators to step in and, and do their jobs. And to some degree, the U.S. has abdicated that responsibility entirely for the rest of the world until we get full some regulation of the social media platforms in place that, you know, adheres to democratic and human rights standards. I don't think the rest of the world is going to be able to achieve anything because the, pl the platforms are headquartered here. You know, we have the most influence over them. So I don't mean to blame it all on the platforms, but I think that regulatory aspect is how we get politicians in line, certainly when it has to do with elections. Let me ask you, Nina, a bit about the purpose of this disinformation, because I'm reminded, particularly also hearing Emily talk about her coverage of the sort of George Soros conspiracy theories in Hungary today, but also other examples of the way that obvious lies or conspiracy theories have been spread by important politicians in Europe and the US. And it often seems to me, in fact, I remember being in Budapest 
early last year, so in 2019, around the time of the protests, kind of brief protests against Viktor Orban. And I was, you know, walking along streets and you'd see these big banners with crazy slogans about George Soros or even pictures of him, you know, on the sides of buildings. You didn't have to be that kind of wise to how populist leaders like Orban work to see that they were exaggerated and ridiculous. And I, and I asked some of the protesters this, and I said, do your fellow Hungarians really believe half of this stuff? And they said, well, some of them do, and some of them believe part of it, and some of them probably don't believe it at all, but they get a sense from Orban and from his government that even if they don't believe it, they're communicating something that they think chimes with their worldview. And it seems to me that part of the disinformation is almost obviously made up or is obviously deceitful. Do tell me if you disagree, but that, and this applies in some ways to some of the disinformation that we've seen in US politics, in UK politics recently, you know, in the way that actually quite liberal minded metropolitan political leaders like Boris Johnson and Michael Gove told people with a straight face that half of Turkey was going to move to the UK if we stayed in the European Union, that actually part of it is deceiving people. But part of it is actually almost having the gall to deceive or having the gall to talk such nonsense. And I wonder, do you think part of the point of disinformation is to actually make people sort of respect your deceitfulness or to sort of to, to say, yes, of course, I'm talking rubbish to a certain segment of your audience. But that's why you need to kind of genuflect to me or that's why you need to kind of get with my program. I mean, is, is there a part of it where it's not actually about deceiving, but about kind of simply having the guts to tell the lie and have people recognize that you're doing it? I think definitely in terms of the the populist leaders, that's that's certainly a trend. But there are countries where, you know, disinformation takes hold without that sort of kind of magnetism and personality-based politics. And I think to some degree that was the case in in Poland until recently, you know, Duda's kind of cleaned up and and shown himself to be a leader of of the Law and Justice Party in a way that he hadn't been before this election. He was kind of seen as a lapdog of Kaczynski, but you know, still the Law and Justice Party was able to use and there are studies on this, plenty of them, one done by the Oxford Inst- Internet Institute a couple of years ago that shows that they've used inauthentic accounts to seed, again, not necessarily outright false narratives, but to seed discontent and distrust in certainly the Civic Platform Party and in the European Union, for instance. And I I think there is a, a scale, but I absolutely agree with your point that there are certain leaders for whom this is this is part of their power dynamic and them telling lies shows them sticking it to the man to some degree. That being said, you know, I've been spending a lot of time in anti-vax and QAnon conspiracy groups lately. And, and I do think- Briefly talk us through those two movements. Oh, briefly. I don't know if that's possible. <laughs> But uh, so so the anti-vaccination movement has, you know, a long history before the, the pandemic, but it has really gained strength over the past couple of months as conspiracy theories that say the coronavirus vaccine is a chance for the government to install a microchip in your body that they will then use to track you with 5G networks. So adding the 5G conspiracies in there as well. Oh, wow. So there's there's that kind of segment of the population. They also believe masks are 
are evil and that you're breathing in carbon dioxide and that they're very harmful to you and that it's all government control to make us into sheeple. And very closely related to that, unfortunately, we're seeing increasing overlap between these two movements is the QAnon conspiracy movement, which in a nutshell, I mean, they believe that there is some sort of deep state conspiracy that is trafficking in children. That's a big part of it, that Donald Trump is the kind of savior to deliver the US government from evil. And it I have a hard time even summarizing it in a nutshell because there are so many offshoots and and kind of crazy, I don't know, rabbit holes that you can go down with it that it's just, I mean, it's really mind boggling, but it, there's an increasing number of people who are adhering to both of these. And I don't think it's, uh, that's, you know, surprising in this time of uncertainty and fear that people are turning to conspiracy theories and, and these sort of contrarian movements. And I think that's giving them too much credit, honestly, to really find find certainty in these uncertain times. To some degree, there are people who like that Trump can say whatever he wants or that Orban can say whatever he wants and, and they're sticking it to the man. But there are also real adherents of these, these conspiracy movements that are not too many steps removed from the actual stuff that Trump himself is sharing. And they have real world effects. You know, the, the QAnon folks have committed a couple of, of violent acts, including uh, the very famous Pizzagate conspiracy theory, which is part of QAnon, where a guy came to a pizza shop here in Washington and nearly shot the place up because he thought there were children being trafficked from the basement. So, you know, they, they do have real world effects and there are real world adherents. And I think we do run a risk in trivializing the stuff that our, our leaders say and saying, oh, you know, it's just a tweet. But but we see the follow-on effects from these tweets. We see the follow-on effects from the dog whistles that leaders like Trump are sharing when they share conspiracy theories about Soros or, you know, they tacitly endorse the QAnon movement, which we're yep. seeing increasing in Congress. So yep. I think we have to be really careful about that. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print, or both, from as little as £1 a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. A couple last questions, which is one, I think in 2016, there was so much alarm around Russian interference that was, in my opinion, not so constructively channeled in some cases into just russophobia, right? Mm -hmm. And blaming Russia for everything that we saw. So how do you disentangle that from constructively approaching disinformation, which is linked to my second question, which is how is all of this different in 2020 than it is in 2016? Yeah, it's really hard to see some of the rhetoric about Russia. You know, I the first instance of this I remember is when a, a popular commentator said something to the effect of Russia is responsible for the riots and killing of Heather Heyer in, in Charlottesville. And I just, I mean, that just took my breath away with its I don't even know how to describe it. It's just so far beyond the pale. America has an endemic racism problem, right? <laughs> but to clarify, this was the woman who was hit by the car during the protest. Yes, yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And they said, you know, Russia had instigated those protests, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it was just, it was shocking to me to to see that case being made. And there are still people who who say similar things about, you know, the far right here in the United States. I think we need to recognize that our internal societal fissures are being weaponized bad, by bad actors, whether those are foreign or domestic, and that, you know, Russia isn't 
isn't responsible for every bad thing that happens here. We can say that and still make the point that it is a national security threat that Russia is influencing our our democratic discourse ahead of our elections, which it is doing. In 2020, it actually looks a lot more like these kind of conspiracy theories about Russia being behind every bad thing that happens because they're increasingly using domestic actors to spread their messages, sometimes wittingly, sometimes unwittingly. And the way that the conversation has changed online, moving into closed spaces like Facebook groups and onto encrypted messengers, it makes it so much harder to track that information that, you know, we're finding out about this stuff months after it has been really effective in many cases, because we just don't have the the visibility and transparency into those spaces to track and counter them in real time. So uh, my message to everybody, no matter what country you're in, this is happening everywhere. Again, not just Russia, there are domestic actors using the exact same tactics is to just be really vigilant online. Just because you're in a closed space that is supposed to be for people from your town doesn't mean that everyone is who they say they are. You know, we've just seen this massive hack at Twitter affecting many high, high level, high follower accounts. Again, we just need to be we need to take some real precautions about the information we share and what we trust, especially around election times. But these campaigns are much longer than that and, and seeded for many years before. So just be vigilant and exercise some healthy skepticism. Good advice indeed. And with that, I think it's time for a section that we like to call... You Ask Us. How'd I do, Jeremy? That was a solid eight. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Our first question comes to us from Yoon in Glasgow. You and I apologize if I mispronounced your name. The question is, will the Republican Party bounce back to their pre-Trump days after Trump loses re-election? Or let's tweak that slightly to if Trump loses re-election. Or will the next GOP nominee be another maverick nativist? Nina, we will let you take the first stab at that. Oh my gosh. Far be it from me to, you know, diagnose what's wrong with party politics here in in the United States. I think that both parties honestly have some reckoning to do after after this election no matter how it goes. Increasingly we are seeing that their positions do not represent a majority of their voters. And so I think, you know, in in this two-party system, both of our big parties are going to need to really figure out what they mean in this era. Is it a big tent policy or are they going to increasingly appeal to the the voters who are perhaps a little bit fringy, but very, very active and engaged and move the dial that way? And I think, again, that's not just the Republicans who have to have to make that calculation. The Democrats do as well. It seems like the Democrats so far are, are erring toward the more moderate end of the spectrum. But what's going to happen after 2020? I mean, I don't like to predict with the Republicans. I, I really think it's too early to say anything. We could see a shift. To, if Biden wins, we could see a shift toward more more moderatism, more compromise in, in politics. But I would kind of be surprised about that, frankly. So again, not looking in my crystal ball, but there's a lot of reckoning that needs to be done. I'm not sure what you guys think. I agree with all of that. I would just add that I think that it is very difficult to put the genie back in the bottle on nativism and racism. And that if Trump is, you know, if he loses election in 2020, or if he wins and is constitutionally obligated to step down in 2024, I I don't see how that goes with him. Who, Who do you see both of you as being the kind of heir to the Trump political project if he does lose? Are we talking Ivanka or are we talking Nikki Haley or someone like that? I think that this is not a direct answer to your question, but I think that we'll see, we will see some people who were associated with the Trump administration 
like Nikki Haley, who will try to kind of straddle the line, right? And say, on the one hand, appeal to Trump loyalists because she was part of the Trump administration while slightly distancing herself from some of the less, I guess, less civil rhetoric is how I'll put it. There will be some of that. I think we'll also see like the Tucker Carlson wing of the party, right? Which says that you want, you know, a more robust economic safety net that does not come with it. What they call identity politics, I would probably refer to it as a more- He's the guy on, on Fox News, right? Exactly. He's a Fox News TV host. So, you know, it's interesting because there's some overlap between left and right on this on economic populism. I guess the issue with that is that I don't know that the there's some on the right who I don't know see that as needing to be equitably distributed across various races and religions and-, and, and I mean, it's racist, right? Let me just say it directly that if you want if you want more economic support for white people, that is a racist policy. So I think that we'll see some of that as well. There will also inevitably be some talk of, oh, if Republicans want to win the suburbs again, they need a more moderate candidate. You know, suburban voters are increasingly supportive of Black Lives Matter and are not anti-immigration. The problem is, can you get enough voters to come along with that, that you win your primary? Mm. I also think uh, Mike Pompeo is a player in all of this. I think yes. he is definitely grooming himself to be a nominee of some sort in the future. And I wouldn't be surprised if he was angling for that Trump base as well. Well, he seems to be getting around the country in quite a strategic way from what, yeah. from what I read and from what I hear from Emily. I'm going to briefly put a final second question to you both, which is from Adam Cobb, who is in Stockport, but says he is in Sterling during lockdown. He asks, with the world finally deciding that it is worried about what is happening in China, is there a danger that we have lost a number of years in terms of building alliances in East and Southeast Asia between other countries to counterbalance this? I assume that by we, he means the West in general, but by all means, I'd be interested in your thoughts on the US perspective in particular. Nina, would you like to give any thoughts on that? I think that, you know, we were just talking about this this morning in another discussion at Chatham House, actually, there's often a lot of rhetoric that, you know, we need to cozy up to Russia to do the counterbalancing against China, because otherwise they're going to create an axis of evil and we're not going to be able to stand up to it. Which, by the way, is very much Emmanuel Macron's view on how- Oh, 100%. (laughs) It's also the Indian line, right? Like, well, we need to stay friends with Russia because otherwise they'll go over to China. Okay, so this is obviously a powerful idea. Nina, why is it wrong? I just don't think that we need to give up on our values. And it's hard to balance. I mean, both of these regimes are adversaries, right? I don't think that we should give up on the values that we've been fighting for, for, you know, Russian democratic activists since 1991. And and since, you know, throughout the Cold War, just because we think that there might be a greater threat in China. I think that we can do both at once. We can walk and chew gum. And and yeah, those values should, should really be dictating everything that we do. I don't think we need to make a a devil's bargain there. I'll take the question slightly differently and just say that I think one could easily make the criticism that, yes, these past four years have not done wonders for our alliances with or our partnerships with Japan and South Korea. I think Trump has taken a very transactional approach and uh, has had spats with both countries accordingly. And if your goal is to work with your partners in the Asia Pacific to stand up to this rising power, I, I wonder if that's the most effective way of doing that. But Jeremy, do you have do you have thoughts? Nothing huge to add to that other than that the US pivot to the Pacific was a big part of Obama's administration and it was, you know, some were a bit disappointed by what it actually meant in practice. 
And as I wrote in our World Review newsletter last week, you know, there is now a growing tension in the South China Sea as the West arguably belatedly starts to challenge China's expansionist moves there. The US only about two weeks ago sent two aircraft carriers into the region to sort of, you know, bolster its alliances in East and Southeast Asia and to send a signal to Beijing. But as you say, Emily, that is being pushed by a very arbitrary administration in the US that seems to pick fights with certain countries when it suits it politically, but not to have any sort of strategy. And obviously, you know, that goes for China. Trump Trump is both tough on China and his rhetoric. And some of those in his administration are following through on the pivot to the Pacific and on security obligations in the Western Pacific region. But at the same time, you know, this is a guy who, according to John Bolton, was asking China for help with his re-election effort. So it's not exactly a, you know, it's very hard to talk about a doctrine with this administration because it is seemingly entirely led by gut feeling and sort of opportunistic self-interest. But on that on that cheery note, let's quickly turn to our final segment, which is what are we all looking out for next week? Nina, do you want to start us off? Sure. Uh, I am definitely looking at cybersecurity news. We had that big hack of several Twitter accounts this week. We also had news that Russia is attempting to hack vaccine trials for the coronavirus vaccine. I'm interested to see how the Trump administration in particular is going to respond to all of this news, if they will respond at all. Emily, what are you looking out for? I'm going to steal your answer from the first week we did this podcast and say that I'm still looking for Vice President Biden to announce who his running mate will be. Biden, please, we just want to know. Please tell us. It has to happen at some (laughs) point. The convention is coming up. Just give us a name. It was when I first gave it. That was quite an open-ended answer. But uh, (laughs) the end is in sight. Um, Yes, that will be really (laughs) fascinating. And we can say the same thing as as I did when I first raised that, which is that it's going to be a really interesting steer as to what sort of presidential campaign he wants to run and what sort of president he'd be if he was elected. So absolutely agree with that. My moment of next week is... On Thursday, the 23rd, China is launching its first ever independent mission to Mars, which is going to be significant for several reasons. For a start, it's the first time that it has done so without the help of the US or the international community. The second is that it is a real sign of China's sort of ambitions and its rise. You know, this is this this is this is a a regime that enjoys symbolic victories like this one. And they're going all in. The The spacecraft in question will be launched from the island of Hainan on the south of China. It's called Tianwen-1, or the quest for heavenly truth. And it's going to explore Mars both on the surface and in, in its atmosphere. And I think this is, this is you know, we talk about historical turning points, but this is a mark of China's rise and a mark of its ambitions to be an independent superpower in many ways. So I think it's going to be worth watching. And it'll be interesting to see also about how it kind of relates to the political situation in Beijing at the moment, which is, you know, which has turned more belligerent, as we've talked about in past episodes, and as I've discussed in in our World Review newsletter, and how it's used for domestic and international political purposes. So I'll be looking out for that. That means all that remains is for us to say thank you to Nina Jenkowitz, who is, again, a New Statesman contributor and, very importantly, the author of the newly released How to Lose the Information War, now available for purchase at bookstores, online, and just online. Nina, thank you so much for being (laughs) with us today. Thanks for having me, Emily, and congratulations on your book as well. I'm really looking forward to reading your book, Nina. It, it, it sounds fantastic. And as a reminder, you can subscribe to our World Review newsletter 
and you can follow all of our international coverage on our international homepage newstatesman.com slash international do look out for next week's issue of the New Statesman which will be our three week summer special with an array of detailed features and memoirs and cultural pieces uh, that will really help you pass those long summer weeks potentially not by the pool or by the coast but even if you're at home and we've got a lot of really interesting and really enriching pieces about an array of subjects including my long awaited feature on Italy so do look out for that when it appears online on Wednesday and on newsstands in the UK late next week all that remains is for me to thank our producer Nick Hilton to thank you for listening and to say until next week quality sleep is essential that's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature sleep number smart beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.